Well, good morning, everybody. Praise God. Welcome to Gospel Saving Church. I'm so glad you're here. If this is your first time here, welcome. I'm Pastor Ed Spagnoli, and this is Gospel Saving Church, one of God's true churches of these last days, and this is our weekly broadcast of truth from God's Word. I hope you didn't come to church today to be entertained, because we're not supposed to be entertainers. The true preachers of the Word of God are not supposed to entertain you. They're supposed to teach you the Word of God. And you're supposed to come to church not to be entertained, but to learn the Word of God, to be edified in the Word of God, to edify others, so that others will edify you. So that's the reason why we come to church, to get to know God more, to learn to follow God more, or if you're not standing with the Lord Jesus Christ, so that you would come to stand with the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's why we're supposed to be here, not to be entertained. So I hope that's why you're here, and that's what you're going to get. You're going to hear the Word of God, and you're going to hear the, the, the true things of the Word of God, and not my opinions, and we're not, I'm not going to entertain you, so... Here we go. If that's why you're here, come on, keep listening, and we're going to learn the Word. We're going to be in Acts 25, verses 13 through 27 today. But if you want to join me in a word of prayer first, I would appreciate it, as we need God to help us understand His Word. That's what the Word says. Our flesh cannot understand the words of God. It's only by the Spirit of God. So, Lord, we we thank You for bringing us here. We, We thank You for all Your great love and Your great mercy and Your great kindness, Lord God, towards sinners. For, Lord God, we have all sinned, and we've all fallen short of the glory of God, Lord God. Whether, whether or not we're standing in Jesus Christ perfected, and we still sin uh, as we are in weakness, and we still do sin sometimes, Lord, or whether, Lord, you're somebody that's sitting out there, listening out there right now, is, is, is caught in sin, Lord God, and they're, and they're stuck in sin, and, they, and they've, they're backslidden away from you, Lord, and and they're no longer your friend, Lord God. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But thanks, thanks be to you for Jesus Christ that we can have new life uh, in you, Lord. I, I, I pray, Lord God, um, that you would help us to understand your word, Lord. And not only to understand it, Lord, but I, help, or I pray that you would not only allow us to understand it, but help us to respond, Father God. Because it's not the hearers of the word that are blessed, it's the hearers that do. Lord, the hearers that that do what you say to do. And Lord, not salvation by works, but Lord, just hearers follow and respond to the things which you say to do. Lord, in order to A, be right with you, or B, to follow you, or to follow you stronger, to become more mature in you. So Lord, I pray you'd help us to be doers of the word and not just hearers only. We thank you for bringing us here. We thank you for all the good things that you do for us and in our lives. And and we want to glorify you and thank you for all of these things and, and praise you. And we ask all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen. Again, as I said, Acts chapter 25, verses 13 through 27. We're going to finish out the chapter, but we're only going to make it about halfway through the account uh, with Paul and a new ruler, Festus, and a new person that's going to come in today. Title of our sermon today, Jesus, the King Supreme. Jesus the King Supreme. I'm going to read along, Acts 25, 13 through 27. If you want to follow me, you can. If you want to listen along, that's fine too. But here we go. The Bible says this. And after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. When they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, It is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. Therefore, when they had come together, without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in, When the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I supposed, but had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus whom had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and be judged there concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would also like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, Festus, tomorrow, Festus said, tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. Verse 23. So the next day when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with commanders and the prominent men of the city at Festus' command, Paul was brought in. 
And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that the examination so that the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. Again, this is only half the account. Next week, we'll probably end up doing the whole chapter where Festus and Agrippa and Bernice, uh, we'll talk about them in a minute, where they get to hear Paul's argument, hear Paul's defense, and hear Paul talk about Jesus Christ and their response to that. But this week we have enough to talk about in this one section here. Last week we read of the changing of the guard of governors of Caesarea from the corrupt Felix to the corrupt Festus and what that meant for Paul. Corrupt Felix, who loved money and sin, remember, in his unrighteous ways, he left Paul bound in Roman custody in Caesarea as a favor to the murderous Jews. That's what the scripture tells us. And, and Festus, well, he was just a rotten and corrupt politician who had a sick desire to know why the Jews wanted Paul dead, who, after his sick desire was fulfilled and he knew Paul was innocent, asked Paul if he would go down to Jerusalem and be judged by him there. Uh, Just so, remember, him having this foreknowledge uh, for the Jews had asked for his destruction in the certain way that they were going to do it, he had the foreknowledge to send him to Jerusalem if he wanted to go, just so that the Jews could kill him. Paul received this choice because he was innocent and a Roman citizen, and of course, it wasn't God's time for him to die. And because Festus had to answer to the council that was looking on, we talked about that last week, and he asked to be judged by Caesar, who was in Rome, because he knew that Jesus Christ wanted him there, and that if he took Festus' offer and went to Jerusalem, the Jews were going to kill him. And of course, Paul was smarter than that. God had made him an intelligent man. Corrupt Felix consults the council that was watching on, and they agree that since he had asked to be judged by Caesar, Caesar, then he could. So corrupt Festus leaves Paul in Roman custody, but sadly, as I'll point out a little later, I don't personally believe by one verse that's in our section today that Paul was left in the same kind of custody that Felix left him in, where he had all these royal liberties. I think uh, I think old Festus had put him in a real prison at this point, but I'll point that out when we get there. This is the situation that we open up to today. Paul is in, I believe, prison now at this point, and probably writing some of the epistles that we have in our amazing Bible. And of course, Festus is there, and we read verse 13 again. And this is our situation. After some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. Enter King Agrippa and Bernice, his sister, not his wife, although history tells us that they were in an incestuous relationship together, sickly. Uh, There are two King Agrippas in the Bible, both party of the Herod family, the Herod whom tried to kill the baby Jesus. King Herod Agrippa I was the grandson of Herod the Great. Agrippa I, the first one, is the King Herod who killed the Apostle James and imprisoned Peter, Acts 12, 1-3. And his son, King Herod Agrippa II, or the second, the Agrippa that we read of here today in Acts 25, history tells us that he was the brother of the Bernices with here and of the brother of Drusilla, if that seems to make any sense. Drusilla, remember, was the wife of Felix. Well, that was... Festus's sister. Now it's no wonder why I see here as I think about it, I wonder how Festus got the governorship of Caesarea. Hmm, I guess they just wanted to keep it into the family, right? Anyway, verse 1 just told us that after some days, we don't know how many, but some days, Paul's uh, since Paul's trial, Agrippa II comes to Caesarea to talk to, visit with Festus uh, with his sister Bernice. He probably came to welcome Festus to the governorship of Caesarea, a common gesture amongst the, number one, they were family, but number two, uh, they were both you know, leaders of, in, in the Roman you know, leadership over the, Rome, over the Jewish areas. And while he was there visiting Festus, look at verses 14 and 15, when they had been there many days, we don't know how many days is many, but it was many, I'm guessing guessing if I had to guess a couple of weeks, Festus laid Paul's case before the king. Festus tells Agrippa about Paul's case. Look what he tells him. We're not going to spend too much time here because we've already heard this information once already, saying, he said there, there is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, 
Now remember, I just said King Agrippa II was the brother-in-law to Felix as Drusilla was his sister, so I find it a little shocking that Festus didn't already know, you know, that Felix hadn't already told him that, you know, this was, or I'm sorry, I can't believe that Festus hadn't told Agrippa here that Paul was there before he came, but I shouldn't probably find that uh, too, too weird because, you know, royal families didn't really always communicate that well, but verse 15 about whom, keeps telling about Paul, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, Jerusalem asking for a judgment against him. Lastly, he tells them about this little meeting between him and the Jews in Jerusalem after, remember, he was only the governor in Caesarea for just three days where they had asked him for the situation to kill Paul. Hey, if you send him to Jerusalem, then and, you know, we'll catch him along the road and we'll take him out and, and that way he'll be out of your hair kind of thing. And so anyway, easy stuff. I'm not going to spend any more time there. Moving forward, Festus goes on to tell Agrippa his response to the Jews' request. Verse 16, To them I answered, It is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. I find this extremely funny. I find this extremely ridiculous. Again, you know, Festus, Felix, brother-in-law, you know, they, they, they met up together. Felix didn't tell him about Paul before. Paul, remember, had already had two trials where he'd already stood before his accusers again, twice. Now here, Festus tells Agrippa, oh, I thought it necessary. I, I, just, I just find it real funny that he didn't already know that Paul had st stood before his accusers twice before this. I, I think here that Festus is kind of just saying this hiding his sick obsession to hear about Paul's case, as I mentioned earlier, because I, I just really do. I, I think he knew about it. I just think he had this sick obsession. Well, I want to hear this guy for myself. I want to know why this guy is, you know, why these Jews want to kill this guy so much, you know. But anyway, did you notice there that Festus tells Agrippa right there that the Jews flat out ask him to give Paul over to the destruction, which means that they wanted to kill him. That should have told Agrippa a little bit about these Jews. The moment he said, uh, I answered, it is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets his accuser. That, that meant that he was saying, hey, they came and asked me, hey, give them to us. We want to kill them. And so uh, anyway, Agrippa should have a pretty good idea of the Jews at this point here. Look at verses 17 through 19. Festus keeps talking. He says this. Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. He, he tells him exactly what happened in the original account. Remember, he gets to Caesarea the very next day. You know, the Jews were all there. He immediately comes and brings everybody out together. So this is exactly what happened. He's just kind of retelling us everything that we read over last week. Verse 18, when the accusers stood up, Here's enter the Jews and enter their accusations against Paul. They brought no accusation against them of such things as I supposed, but had some questions against them about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, who Paul affirmed to be alive. So in the original account, we learn that they made a lot of accusations against Paul that they could not prove. Festus, you know, he is corrupt. Of course, he's going to be a liar. And all, most you know, leaders are corrupt and, and liars. Anyway, he, he, he leaves out that point and he, he kind of throws another obvious thing that maybe was bothering him. Like not only uh, when they came before him, not only were their accusations ones that could not be proved, but here he tells uh, Agrippa, he says, hey, th that these guys, they, they brought these, these accusations against Paul. And, you know, basically... I didn't want anything to do with them. They weren't concerning Roman law. They had, I, I wasn't offended with them. It was their own Jewish law, plus this guy whom, you know, Jesus tells us that uh, he was uh, he died, but then Paul, you know, claims that he's alive, which, which again, it's telling me here, Festus was like, I really don't care about this stuff. This stuff doesn't really matter to me. So that's a key point to the verse. That's a key point, I should say, to the whole sermon Festus wasn't bothered by what Paul preached about Jesus, 
who was the Christ, the Messiah. He had no real problems that he was concerned with. That's going to be important as we move on. I just want to keep your minds there. We're going to move forward, but that's going to be an important part of our sermon. Anyway, Festus tells Agrippa that Paul didn't do anything that bothered him. He just talked about this guy named Jesus, again, whom he, who, who had died, but Paul claimed to be alive. He tells Agrippa that the Jews' uh, problems with Paul were concerning their own religion, which, again, Festus obviously didn't care much about. Uh, Paul, remember, was a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He didn't just preach Jesus uh, when times were good. He preached Jesus Christ, and even in the midst of the times were bad, right? And which, which again, Festus obviously didn't care much about. Paul uh, was a great man of God. Scripture tells us that these are the exact reasons why the Jews wanted to kill Paul. Remember, they didn't like his teachings of the law of Moses. Paul taught, of course, that the law of Moses was an important thing to keep, as I teach today. Uh, the laws of the land, the you know the, the the holy and good laws that Christ affirmed in the Old Testament, not to, not stoning people that are caught in adultery or stoning homosexuals and things like that, but the good and moral holy laws that God laid down. Those are still good laws for us to keep today. And of course, that's why Paul taught the law of Moses. It was an important thing to keep. But remember, the Jews were offended because Paul said, "Hey, I." The law of Moses doesn't make you right before God. The law of Moses is there as a good standard to say, hey, I want to live a holy life before God. I'm going to live that holy life before God. But remember, the law of Moses, the law of our land, the the good laws of the Bible, they aren't what make us right with God because we can't be saved by works. It's only through who? Jesus Christ, the Savior of all mankind. It's because of him. And that's what Paul taught. Paul kind of made Jesus Christ preeminent above the law of Moses. Paul made Jesus Christ, and not that Paul did it, Christ did it himself by his teachings and by his, his resurrection from the dead, but of course Jesus Christ came, became king supreme, as now you see where kind of the title came from. This is what Paul taught. Paul taught Jesus king supreme over what? Over every thing, right? The Jews, they were willing to accept Jesus as Jesus Christ as the Messiah of God, but they weren't willing to receive that he was preeminent and king supreme above everything else, even their precious law. They held their precious law kind of as their God. And so that was, I, I called it, there was a little sermon where I talked about it was their little G God. Anyway, uh, that is the very same problem that most people have with Jesus of the Bible today. Many people believe in Jesus, but they're not willing to allow him to supersede or be preeminent or be king supreme over all of their other beliefs over their religions, over their lifestyles that they want to live, and they don't want to make them their Lord and Master and King above everything else in this world. And of course, that's the same problem people have with them today, same problem that the Jews had with them back then. And, and the reason why most people reject the true Jesus Christ of the Bible and his teachers and preachers is because this is what Jesus Christ teaches, that he must be to someone for them to be saved and have eternal life. He must be preeminent. He must be your king supreme above everything else. And of course, you must respond to him by, of course, submission. Uh, We'll address this idea more at the end of the message as there's an important detail that I'll bring up about Paul and the way Festus, and we're going to look at how Agrippa responded to Paul's case. But let's keep moving on for now. Verses 20-21, where Festus begins to be dishonest with Agrippa in his retelling of the counts between he, Paul, and the Jews. Look at verses 20 and 21. He goes on to say, And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and be there and, and, and there be judged concerning these matters by me. Now, sadly, we know this to be a flat-out lie, according to verses 7 and 9 of Acts 25. We studied them last week. Verse 7 told us that Festus wasn't one bit uncertain of the things that Paul spoke about, and and even if he did, simply he didn't care. Verse 7 told us that the Jews couldn't prove their accusations against Paul flat out. 
They gave their accusations, which could not be proved. That was verse 7. Verse 9 told us that because Festus couldn't condemn Paul by their accusations, because remember, he had a kind of counsel looking over his shoulder that was looking over the case, and they couldn't find Paul guilty because they couldn't prove their accusations. Nobody could find him guilty. That he remember, he just wanted to give Paul into their hands to do him a favor and allow him to kill him. He didn't ask Paul if he wanted to go to Jerusalem to be judged by him because he really wanted to have another trial and judge him fairly. Uh, beginning of Acts 25 told us that he wanted to send Paul to Jerusalem knowing, with again, I talked about this at the beginning of the sermon, with the foreknowledge that the Jews asked him, hey, and he even admitted it to, to, to Agrippa here earlier in, the, in his little conversation with him. He, they, he knew that the Jews had asked him, Hey, send him to Jerusalem, and then we'll just ambush him on the road, and we'll just kill him. So he, uh, common sense tells us here that, that his judgment of Paul wouldn't have been any different in Jerusalem than it was in Caesarea. Why would the location that Festus judged Paul matter on whether he was able to judge him fairly or not? That, that's just foolishness, right? If, if I know all the facts of the details in McKinney, Texas, I don't need to take you to Plano, Texas, in order to make a fair judgment because what is the location going to have to do when I already know all the details of the case? Here, he just wanted to, to judge him in Jerusalem, but he didn't want to, I should say. He just wanted Paul out of his hair knowing that if Paul went, the Jews were going to ambush him and kill him. It is funny, though, why the unjust and ungodly Festus lied to Agrippa here. Why didn't he just tell him the truth? Why didn't he just say, hey, Agrippa, you know, I, I asked him to go down. You know what? I was tired of the case. I figured out why they want to judge him, and it was ridiculous, and I wasn't concerned about it, so now I just wanted to get rid of him. And so, hey, I just wanted him out of my hair. I, I believe... Um, you know, that, that most all rulers or politicians are, are all liars and all thieves and they're all unjust. There, there's an old saying, power corrupts, ultimate power corrupts ultimately. Usually, even if a politician comes into office, an honest man or woman, it's not long before they become corrupt for various reasons, special interest groups, you know, so on and so forth, peer pressure. Anyway, I think he lied though. Why did he lie? I, I just think he lied because of his conscience. Your conscience is a powerful, powerful, powerful minister that God gave you. And God gave everybody a conscience. I don't care who you are, whether you hate him, whether you love him, whether you're his best friend, whether you're backslidden, whatever. God gave you a conscience. And I think he lied because of his conscience got to him. He, he, he was willing to grant the Jews their request to kill Paul. That was obvious in his trial. He knew that if he sent him back, they had already asked him, we're going to get him on the way. Yeah, we're going to get him. So he knew, so, but he was willing to do that. But what was it in? That was in secret. He was willing to do that, but in secret. Only if that deal was between him and the Jews was good, then he was willing to do it. And of course, he's willing to, to shout it out loud, shout that out loud. Hey, Paul, you know, go back to Jerusalem and I'll, and I'll uh, judge you there. Of course, nobody in the room but Festus and the Jews. Well, of course, Paul also, because of his insight that God had given him. Nobody else in the room knew that the Jews had worked out a deal with Festus. But here, he didn't want to scream out, shout out loud to Agrippa, hey, you know, the Jews had asked me for a deal, and so that's why I was going to send him back to Jerusalem. He, he didn't come right out and say it. Remember, your conscience is very, 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 very powerful. Anyway, moving forward, verse 21, he finishes up by telling Agrippa this, verse 21, but when Paul appealed to be reserved to the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. He, he almost tells the truth there. He gives a partial truth. I, uh, on partial truths, I, I know there may be some out there listening right now that are saying, partial truths are of the devil. Well, they can be, but they're not always. <gasps> Pastor Ed, I can't believe you said that. Partial truths are always of the devil. They're a lie. They, they are mostly lies, but why are they lies? They're not lies because they are what they are. They're lies because if you give them to deceive somebody, that's when they're a lie. A partial truth is not always a lie depending on how it's given. Let's say somebody, you can, let's say tomorrow morning you get up and, you know, let's say you're off and a good friend calls you and you just so happen to be on the toilet and you're, you're you know, you're given your morning constitutional and your friend says, oh man, so how's it going? What are you up to today? 
and you go, oh man, you know, I got up and I had my breakfast and, uh, you know, you know, doing, I'm going to got some plans to do some things today and I'm going to, but you left out that you were on the toilet. Well, you just gave him a partial truth. You didn't tell him every single thing that you were doing, did you? Well, no. So again, in that situation, you're not given the partial truth to deceive somebody. You're given a partial truth so that, the, you know, everybody doesn't need to know every single detail. And nobody even wants to know every single detail of what you do in your day, even the private things that you do, like the bathroom and things that a married couple might do. So anyway, just, just be careful that you're not always thinking that partial truths are bad. Here, the partial truth that... Uh, Festus gives Agrippa is a lie, and it is bad, and it's because he was trying to deceive Agrippa. Remember, he wasn't the only one. He, of course, wanted to make himself feel, you know, seem to Agrippa like, you know, more powerful than what he was, but he wasn't the only one that said, okay, Paul, since you said you wanted to go to, to a, you know, to, to Augustus, then I'll let you go. Of course, we know that our scripture told us that he consulted with the council that was there, and then they together decided, hey, he Paul, he's innocent, he's a Roman. Well, send him to, you know, send him to to Augustus. So anyway, what does Agrippa think of all that Festus tells him so far? Look at verse 22. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would also like to hear the man myself. So his curiosity is peaked, basically. He he wants to hear the case. He wants to hear Paul. He's kind of now got a sick obsession. He's like, well, I don't. I want to hear what the Jews have against this guy. What could they have against this guy that's so bad? So Festus replies, with tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. Anyway, pretty simple. Agrippa's interested. Festus arranges the meeting. Following day, enter the next day, then enter the next scene, verse 23. The next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp, and he had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city. Pretty impressive show of display here for Agrippa. He and his sister come into the auditorium with great pomp. What does that mean? That means that they were basically dressed to the nines, if you ever heard that term before. Dressed to the nines means that you are, you are suited and booted up. You are, you're looking fancy schmancy. You, you, you got all your garb on. Agrippa was a king, a lesser king than Caesar, of course, but he was a king, so he was dressed in all of his kingly garbs, and he looked very rich and powerful, and because he was, and, and to even add to their arrival in this pomp, I'm sure they even probably were playing music and you know a, a great like you know standing ovation was for him because after all he was a king and there he is in you know a city and he's with the governors so anyway so not only does he come in with this great pomp notice he also comes in with the commanders and the prominent people of the city that means that basically everyone who was everyone was there both those that were important from rome and those that were important from Caesarea, they were all there. The rich, the powerful, the important. Uh, in, in many, many, many ways, uh, there was, uh, you know, this was a kind of a gathering of the snobs, a gathering of the upper echelons, you know, those that were super, super important. Uh, now, this is no simple gathering. And remember, remember what they're there to do. They're there to hear Paul. And so Paul will be standing in front of all of these, these super rich and powerful people, and he's going to give his story. It's a hard crowd. He's going he's gonna to be standing there in front of a hard crowd. I've had to speak in front of people before, and, and I've only ever speak, spoke before, you know, basically like the, the people that were normal, regular like myself. I've never actually spoken before, you know, kings and, and princes and commanders and rulers. And, well, here's Paul. And in my experience, uh, if you have this experience as well too, Paul's got a hard case ahead of him. He's got a hard challenge ahead of him because uh, in my experience, the most prideful, arrogant, and stuck-up people in the whole world are those that are rich and those that have power. So Paul has his work cut out for him in this meeting. Where is Paul when this scene is taking place? Is he just kind of in his own abode and Festus had called for him and, you know, he kind of came on his own hanging out, teaching others about Jesus Christ as he was under, under Felix? Read the rest of verse 23. Uh, at Festus' command... Paul was brought in. I, I seem to think here that Festus had moved Paul into uh, more of a serious setting of a prisoner 
uh, more of a typical setting of a prisoner, as I believe that Festus here put Paul kind of in some type of dungeon, some type of prison. And so, I, I don't know, I could be wrong. It's just my opinion, but I, I just see him here being, he was he had to be brought in. While Paul under Felix, he had his own basically range to do whatever he wanted. He had royal liberties. And in the last meeting between Felix and the Jews, it didn't say Felix says he had him brought in. It says that he called for Paul and Paul came. Here we see Paul being brought in. Anyway, I could be wrong, but I seem to see that Festus had Paul in a less accommodative uh, situation than Felix did. Anyway, look at, Fe- look at what Festus has to say to them all. We're going to look at the last four verses of the day in section in our verses 24 through 27, but there's a main thrust that I'll have at the end. So Festus says, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, You see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. He basically starts with all the crowd, kind of how we did with Agrippa, kind of how we did as we read over last week. He starts at the beginning of the story between Paul, the Jews, and himself. Remember, just starting three days after he took the office of Caesarea as governor. Verse 25. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death, uh, there is how he and the council found Paul in the last trial. They found him innocent and so not deserving of death that the Jews wanted for him. He and his Roman council, remember, or the Caesarean council, their judgment of Paul is so important for my finishing idea. I want to bring your mind back to that. So keep your mind back on this. Don't, Don't put your mind off of this. So moving forward, and that he himself had appealed to Augustus. Now he's still talking to the whole auditorium full of people. Uh, Him stating that Paul had appealed his case to Caesar Augustus in Rome. So because he did, of course, we know the account. He goes on to tell them, I decided to send him. Again, he, he and the council decided to send Paul, not he himself, but he says he. But anyway, next, verse 26. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Uh, He goes on to say, to close, therefore I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems uh, to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not specify the charges against him. Remember, neither he nor Festus or the Roman council saw any problem with Paul's teachings of Jesus Christ. And so they really didn't believe that they had any real grounds to send Paul to Rome to stand before Caesar. And, and that is foolishness. That's a very important problem that actually Festus had. Uh, a very important detail for Festus and all Roman leaders here. If they're going to send a prisoner to, to Caesar to stand before his judgment seat for his decision on a specific case to get his ruling, then, of course, number one, the prisoner has to actually have some, some clear problems, some accusations that, are, that were made that were real, where, where Caesar, or any judge for that matter, would be like, oh, yeah, let me hear the case. Oh, this guy did this. This guy always oh, stole the car. Oh, he stole, you know, I'm just saying, he had to have some, some things against Paul to send Paul to them. And again, in his, Felix's, and the council's eyes, they had nothing. And this is a kind of a problem for Festus. If you didn't, if Festus didn't have any problems, then this was number one, showing Caesar that he, Festus, was incompetent because he sent an innocent prisoner to him with no real charges of guilt, right? That's a problem. And then why, Caesar's mind, why is this guy still a prisoner? Why is he, number two, wasting my time? And if Caesar deemed you incompetent, to do this, to make this ruling, and why did you have to send this prisoner to me to waste my time? Uh, he's innocent. You should you should have just let him free, right? Caesar didn't like this. None of the Caesars, especially the one that's in charge right now. We'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, basically, I'm going to get somebody in there that can handle this kind of thing, which in turn meant that Festus was, again, wasting Caesar's time, and, and you didn't waste Caesar's time and look incompetent before him. Those that did... He kind of handled them, you know, kind of a harsh way, especially this Caesar. They basically just either A, take him out of office or 
kill them and take them out of office, which would basically automatically terminate their lives. So this was of an utmost importance that Festus figured out why Paul should go to Rome. Now, they never do. We're going to look next week. They never do. Uh, but what comes next after this account is Paul's defense that he gives in front of an auditorium full of, remember, the rich and powerful and prideful people of the whole land that he was in. And after that, we get Agrippa's assessment of Paul's case. We're going to study this probably next week. We're going to study the whole chapter one week. Uh, again, we won't study this week. There's not enough time as uh, I try to keep my sermons to an hour. I could speak for longer, trust me, but uh, I try to keep my sermons an hour or under. But anyway, but for the purposes of the finish that God has for me, to give to you today, I, I need to read you the very last verse of Acts 26, the very last verse of that whole chapter, the kind of the last verse of this whole scene with Paul, which is Agrippa's response to all that Paul says to defend himself. So if you want to flip there or you just want to scroll your eyes down or flip to the next page, Acts 26:32, Agrippa's response to what Paul says. First, uh, Acts 26, 32, then Agrippa said to Festus, and of course that's after hearing Paul, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Basically, that means that Agrippa found Paul innocent too. Agrippa didn't find anything Paul said that offended him. You know, hey, this guy, what's, I don't know what's wrong with this guy. He could have been set free had he just not appealed to Caesar because there's nothing he did wrong. So now backing up for a little bit, kind of making my, my big end point that I'm going to make here, kind of like the basically the, the capper to the whole thing, an underlying idea that I haven't kind of told you yet. This now makes Paul deemed innocent by first Felix, second Festus, third the Roman council in Caesarea that Festus was inquiring with last week, and now fourth King Agrippa, the king of the whole province, the whole land under Caesar, under this whole area, King Agrippa. And they were all either all Jews that were totally and 100% loyal to, the, to Rome and to Caesar, or they were Romans that were also 100% loyal to Rome and to Caesar as their Lord, ruler, and there's zero disputing that. They all were under Caesar. Nobody questioned Caesar. Caesar was the boss. Augustus was the man. He was the man of the day. Everybody bowed down to him. Basically, um, starting kind of with this Caesar and on, they, they kind of started portraying themselves as God. And again, none of them found Paul guilty for what he taught about Jesus, him preaching Jesus as the Christ or the Son of God, the Messiah of all, and most importantly, preeminent over all and King Supreme over everything, over everything including religions, governments, possessions, powerful men like those who were listening to Paul, even including the Jews' little G-God, the law of Moses, or even those uh, true to Rome, Jesus is the Christ preeminent King Supreme above Caesar, including all the Romans' little G-Gods, and they had a bunch. They had 12 main, and then they had a, a whole bunch after that. Funny that none of the four entities whom were all 100% loyal to Caesar and Rome, whom Paul stood before for judgment, found Paul guilty of anything he preached or taught about Jesus, and they found him not deserving of death for anything that he said. But here's the kicker. When we look to the Caesar of this time, which is none other than, I don't know if you've looked it up by now, you're kind of hearing me talk about him, I don't know whether you looked it up or not, the Caesar of this time was none other than Nero Claudius Caesar, or just Nero for short, one of the harshest Roman rulers ever, for it was he who ruled Rome from 54 to 68 AD at his death, and that would have been throughout all Paul's court cases. And while well, here, along with the Roman citizens, uh, they had no hue. They had backing up. He was the one that ruled Rome from 54 to 68 AD through all of Paul's court cases, right? And he and all the Roman citizens in Rome during this time, during even shortly before 54 AD, 268 AD at his death, they had a great and huge problem with Paul and Christians in general and their teachings and preachings of Jesus. And basically, 
Nero ended up waging war on all Christians to kill them. Nero was actually the Caesar that Paul asked to stand in his judgment seat, and Paul knew that. Paul, is this radical lover of Jesus Christ, asked to stand at the judgment seat of the probably one of the worst Caesars in all of Roman history. It was said that Nero lit his city on fire because he wanted a more extravagant and glorious one. And the, the, the fire ended up burning from seven to ten days, wiping out nearly three quarters of his city. Of course, the people kind of got angry. And, and they started looking to Nero to blame him. So what did he do? He already knowing, I didn't give you this fact yet, but the whole Roman citizenship kind of of Rome and, and Nero Caesar himself, to them, Paul and the teachings of Christ and the church that was in Rome already at this time, they were hostile towards Christians. They were hostile towards the gospel. They were toxic, we could say, toward the gospel and towards Christ, right? This is the same Nero that had tortured and killed Christians left and right and in heinous and horrible ways during his reign, especially from 64 AD to his death in 68 AD, which took now, in case you didn't know, Nero is the one that killed both Paul and Peter while they were in prison there in Rome. He beheaded Paul and he crucified Peter upside down. The same Nero that had posts in his lawn that he would impale Christians on and light them like a torch at night so that they could burn his garden and make his garden look pretty at night as their light from their burning would light his, his, his garden. Paul's trials between the Jews and all these leaders of Rome happened roughly between 59 and 62 AD, and he ended up going to Rome to stand before Caesar for judgment right around 64 AD, which is when Nero burned down three-quarters of the city and then blamed it on the Christians, which gave him the opportunity to extinguish them as insignificant bugs. But before this terrible persecution broke out from Nero in 64 AD, neither Nero nor the Roman citizens cared much for Christians. As I already said, their attitude towards them was kind of toxic. It was kind of, they, they didn't like him at all. They were hostile toward Christians. So why did Nero, as well as those who were loyal to Rome, have such a problem with Paul and Christians' teachings and preachings of Jesus in Rome, while, remember, the four entities who judged him earlier, who were all 100% loyal to Rome, why did they judge him innocent? If, so think about it. That doesn't make sense, right? Right then and there, the Roman citizens and Nero were hostile toward Christians in Rome. They hadn't quite started killing them yet. They were just, he was kind of just in, against them, probably imprisoning them. This is the same guy who had his own mother killed. He basically murdered his way to the top of the Roman, hier or the Roman hierarchy. So, so how did these four entities judge him earlier innocent? being 100% loyal to Rome and find nothing deserving of death when <laughs> realistically they should have because Nero was hostile toward him. Well, because Christianity taught that Jesus, number one, here's, here's why the Romans and Nero and all the people in Rome, this is why they had a problem with, with Christianity and Paul's teaching because Christianity taught that Jesus was the king of the earth. And above all other gods and governments and possessions and even the Caesars, especially Nero. And, of course, for eternal life and to please God, uh, then someone had to turn to Jesus Christ and forsake his, his idols and, and, and Nero as the god and, and, and all the Roman little g-gods. And that no compromise of this honor due to Christ was to be given to anyone or anything else. There's, there's countless countless, countless uh, accounts that come out of Rome during this time that, that the, once somebody found out, that the, once the Roman authorities found out that they were Christians, that they would say, hey, we're going to put you to death. So you have, one, you have two choices. You could either, A, you could basically bow your knee to Caesar. You could just offer a little pinch of incense to our gods. Uh, you could have your Jesus, but just have your Jesus, but also worship our gods as well to kind of throw our other gods in there as well, which is kind of what 
Catholics do. They kind of have Jesus, but then they have a lot of idols. They have Mary, which they also worship, and they bow down to, and they pray to. And it's kind of the same thing. I'm just, no, no, no wonder why Roman Catholicism came out of Rome and came out of the same Rome, where that's what Rome wanted Christians to do. Rome wanted Christians, right, to bow down to their little G-gods that they served and, and Caesar, and then, you know, just kind of have Jesus on the side. And this message, of course, of Jesus as King Supreme above everybody and above Caesar, especially, you know, especially Caesar, uh, he wanted to be worshipped as a God. And the message of the hope in Jesus as the preeminent and as the King Supreme and as his offer of eternal life and the defeat over death was changing people's lives and they were turning to them from the false Roman gods and the worship of Caesar and, of course, this was a big, 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 big no-no. Roman, uh, Rome was feeling the pinch of this change of its people turning to Christ. This is why Christianity was so toxic in Rome, but it wasn't quite there in Caesarea and in Jerusalem. Rome was feeling the pinch because its people were turning away from Nero and turning away from the little g-gods. And that's why Rome and, and Caesar was so hostile and toxic toward Christians. And that's why, sadly, the Romans didn't have much objections towards Nero slaughtering probably hundreds and even thousands of Christians from 64 to 68 AD in barbaric ways because he blamed them for the fire. He, he said it, of course, but of course he had to have a scapegoat because the people started to turn against him. And so, of course, they were people were all for their corporal punishment. They, some of them didn't like the barbaric ways that they were being done in, but they certainly thought the Christians deserved the, the, their, their corporal punishment you know, being put to death. And why those four entities who judged Paul previously didn't find him guilty of these same things a few years earlier, even though Rome was already hostile toward Christians, was because true Christianity hadn't hit Rome in a huge capacity just yet, and in Jerusalem and in the other areas of Paul's judges so far, uh, for the most part, the only ones that were feeling the pinch of the change of Christ and his teachings in Caesarea, in Jerusalem, in the areas that Paul had been preaching in, in Asia were the Jews. The Jews, remember, were to receive the gospel first. And the other people that were turning to Christ, of, of, the, of the Gentiles, they were turning to Christ. But Rome didn't, again, Rome didn't really care because it wasn't Rome and Caesar wasn't there, you know. So it was kind of like disconnected, right? Which is, which is where, which is why they were so anti-Christ there in Rome and hostile, hostile toward Christians. Uh, there, was, there was, remember, the one time, this, this kind of, this situation against Christians that happened in Rome between 64 and 68 AD in a massive way kind of almost happened with Demetrius in, in Ephesus. I believe it was Acts chapter 19 where there was an outbreak of Christ there, remember, where Demetrius got all the silversmiths together. He, you know, because Paul was turning so many people to Christ in Ephesus that they were turning away from Diana. And, of course, the, the silversmiths were feeling the pinch because then all the people that were buying their idols and supporting their, their business, of course, were turning away from the idols and the idol-making business and the idols of Diana and turning to Christ. Well, that's kind of, now you can see Rome, same thing. Christianity was now hitting Rome, and people were turning away from Caesar. People were turning away from the Roman gods. And so that's why. But, but you can't mistake. Kind of that, That's the why, because the why was bothering me. When I was doing the, the message, when I was setting up the message, God, God allowed the why to bother me. Why was it that Christianity was so toxic and hostile in Rome towards, and why wasn't it, why were these 100% loyals to Rome and Caesar not finding Paul guilty during the same time that Rome was having a problem with Christians? And then God helped me figure it out to show me why. Uh, to close, though, at, at the heart of everything, though, at the heart of why Nero, and I, and I think this is such an important thing that we talk about in this day and age in our Christianity in America and all over the world, but, but at the heart of why Nero in Rome was hostile and toxic towards Christ and his teachers of Jesus and why the Jews were so hostile towards Christianity and Paul was because they would not accept Jesus as king supreme over all and turn to him 
as such. And Christians, well, they would not compromise their beliefs of Jesus as King Supreme. Jesus the Christ. Uh, Jesus the Son of God. The, 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 the ruler of the world. And they would not worship Nero. And they wouldn't worship Rome's little g-gods. And the Jews, they weren't willing to stop worshiping their little g-god of the law of Moses and, and all, of their, all of their traditions that they had set up because Christians taught and worshiped Jesus as the one over all. He was the one above everything, and he had to be turned to as such, and he was the one to be turned to, or this is, hey, you can only have favor with God by going through him. And, and just as I said earlier, Jesus Christ and the true teachings of him are still problematic and mo- with most people today. Many people believe in Jesus, the Jesus Christ of the Bible, but they're not willing. They kind of pick and choose the teachings of Jesus. They, they kind of pull out the parts of the Bible that go against what they really like or whatever, and then they kind of only take the things about Jesus, and they really they make their own Jesus, but there's only one Jesus Christ. Many, many people believe in him, but they're not willing to allow Jesus the Christ to be king supreme in their lives. They're not willing for him to be prominent over all their other beliefs, religions, or lifestyles that they want to live, and they aren't willing to make him their Lord or their master. And that's what Jesus Christ says that he must be to someone for them to find favor with God and have eternal life. Now, if Jesus Christ is King Supreme to you, I encourage you to do this. And please go out and poll about 100 people. I mean, you could do 10 or 20 or 30, but I really think 100 would be necessary to really get a full idea. I have talked to many, many, many more than that about Christ, and, and I would like you to ask 100 people. If you're in America, most of which are going to tell you, if you poll them, that they're Christians. If you walk up and you say, hey, hey uh, can, I, can I give you a couple poll questions? They'll say, oh, probably most people say sure. Well, first you say, ah, are you a Christian? Most of the hundred in America will say that they're Christians, or they'll tell you that they believe in Jesus. And that, that almost, almost all hundred, probably nine and a half out of ten people, so probably out of the hundred, maybe 95 people will tell you that they're Christians in America. Now, I'm not sure about the rest of the world, but most, most here in America will, will say that. But, and ask them if they believe that Jesus, here's the poll question, here's the main one I want you to ask them. It's really, it's it's a fun experiment. You should try it. Ask them if they believe, even the ones that say they're Christians, ask them if they believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. Ask them that. And and, and make sure you throw in, so I want to ask you, is Jesus Christ the only way to heaven? And by that I mean, that means that all Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, atheists, Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, Jews, and those who don't believe in him, just period, whatever, whatever, whoever they believe, but is Jesus Christ the only way to heaven? And then all these other people who don't believe in him, they're going to go to hell because they don't when they die. Ask them that poll question. Now, now be careful <laughs> once don't you hear their answer. Be careful uh, who you're standing uh, in front of because if you tell them that you believe Jesus is the only way to heaven and all these other people who don't believe in Jesus are going to die and go to hell when they die, just be careful because they'll act towards you like ravenous wild beasts. Even if they say, oh, I'm a Christian. If you say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, and anybody, whether a good Muslim or a good Buddhist or a good Hindu or even the little old lady across the street who's hardly done anything wrong in her life, but she just doesn't believe in Jesus, that those people will not go to heaven when they die. They'll go to hell. Even Catholics, as I mentioned earlier, who say they believe in Jesus, as I had an aunt who's passed away now, but she was a dire Catholic, in response to the negativity, she responded negative, neg- uh, negative, I should say. That's just a simple word. She responded in a negative way when I said Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven and everybody else who's not on Jesus' side, they're all going to go to hell when they die if Jesus, because Jesus wasn't King Supreme in their lives. Today, real Christians 
are hard to find. I encourage any real King Supreme Christian out there to go out and ask that poll question. But uh, if you are ready, you probably already know the answer. You probably already know how people are going to respond because Christians are hard to find today. True biblical Christians that believe the Bible are few and far between. Real Christians like the early disciples of Jesus Christ, like Stephen, like Philip, like the apostles of Jesus Christ, like Paul, who did not compromise the teaching of Jesus Christ as King Supreme. Jesus as the Christ. Jesus, the Messiah of God. And Jesus, the only way to heaven so that anybody else that's not on his side won't go to heaven when they die. Jesus taught it. Remember John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Paul, Peter, James, Stephen, and countless other true followers of Jesus Christ up to this point, probably hundreds of thousands since Christ came, uh, have been either imprisoned or tortured and then put to death or just flat out murdered for deny for refusing to deny in the, in, even in the tiniest way, just offer a pinch of incense to our gods and you can have your Jesus and we'll let you go. Or, or just, you know what, believe in Jesus, but stop preaching that he's the only way to heaven. Stop preaching your Jesus as King Supreme and it'll be okay. Those countless, countless True diehard believers of the Bible and of Christ have been have perished and been imprisoned and been tortured because they won't deny that simple, simple fact. I work with a guy and we work together. And as we were working together uh, just not too long ago, we started talking, oh, I love Jesus. Oh, I believe in Jesus. Oh, this Jesus, that Jesus. And, I, and then I said, well, you know, Jesus said huh? he's the only way to heaven. Well, he's the only, and anybody who doesn't believe in him, anybody that's not his, that doesn't, worship him and you know is their lord then they're gonna go to hell when they die and to that response i got well i don't believe that why did the bible doesn't say that i said well have you ever read the bible no i haven't read the whole thing but you know that bible doesn't teach that yet jesus christ again john 14 6 i am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except through me do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the King Supreme, God's only Messiah and the only way to heaven? And with this belief, do you obey him as he commanded in the Gospel of Matthew 16, 24 through 27? He says this, if anyone desires to come after me, basically if anyone desires to make me King Supreme in their lives, let him deny himself. That's, that's where it all happens. That's where somebody makes a decision to say, I'm going to stop just believing in Jesus and I'm going to give Jesus the wheel. And, you know, it's a cliche in our, in our America. We have a song, Jesus, take the wheel. For me, it's my life. Uh, but that's what Jesus is saying here. I, I want to be in control of your life. Your life has to be under my control now. I want you to take yourself off your throne of your own heart, because that's how we're born. And he says, and I need to be the king supreme over your life. Put me on the throne of your life so that you bow down to me so that I am your Lord and that I am your master and that you follow me. Because he goes on to say, let him deny himself, which is make him king supreme and take up his cross and follow me. He goes on to say, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses life for my sake will find it. Losing life is surrender. Losing my life for his sake means that I surrender unto him. And then he goes on to kind of talk about what that means, 26 and 27. For what profit is it if a man, if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul. You being in charge of your life, you living how you want, doing the things you want to do, being the person that you want to be. Well, Jesus said, what profit is it to you even if you gain the whole world? Because you can. I mean, somebody it's possible for somebody to go and basically gain as much as they can gain and, and ruling the whole world basically was would be having uh, enough so that nobody could have more. I could become the richest man in the world. And, you know, anybody could do that. That can that can be anybody that could do that, but he says here, what will it? What will you give in exchange for your soul? Is that what you want? 
Do you want to just have riches in this life? Do you want to have this? Oh, verse 27. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He will reward each according to His works. Did you surrender to Christ? Make Him the King Supreme in your life? Or did you say, no, 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 I won't try to gain the whole world. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I know I believe in Jesus, but you know, He's, he's, he's alright, but you know, I gotta... I got to make that money and I got to do those things and I got to, you know, live my life the way I want to live my life. Well, then Jesus said that basically, you know, that you're, you're not going to be his friend. You're, you're not going to be on his side. And then you're going to be judged according to your things that you did. If not, he, him being your Lord and his sacrifice covering your life and your sins. Uh, to be saved and have a relationship with God and be a friend of God, and in order to have eternal life, you must believe that there is no other way to heaven than Jesus Christ, King Supreme, first. That's first and foremost. And that's called repentance. You think, change your mind. Wow, that's, yeah, no. Jesus, if that's what the Bible says, He's King Supreme, He's the only way to heaven. Then I got to believe that. that. That's your first step. That, then, then you must have the belief of the heart, repentance of the heart. You must... Deny self, uh, as King Jesus said, and, and that would be, you know, again, surrendering your heart up to him, uh, coming to have a relationship with him like a wife and a husband do, kind of surrendering all and giving all of themselves to one another and not being their own anymore. A repentance of the heart. This is not anything you're going to do with your actions at first. This is not so, oh, I can, oh, I can stop all of those things and I can, I can stop sinning and I can stop doing this and I can stop doing that. That's not how people are saved. People are saved by repentance of the heart in their heart of hearts going, well, you know what? Well, the Bible's right and I'm wrong. And you know what? I need Jesus and I don't need the way I've been living anymore. I, I need Jesus. And then you making that heart decision to turn to him and make him king supreme in your life. And then once you have surrendered to him as Lord, taking yourself off the throne of your heart, making him your new master and Lord, then you will become born again, the Bible says, and you'll follow him and not follow nor serve the little G-gods of this world. You, you won't follow the Caesars of the world anymore. You won't follow your own lusts anymore. God will turn you away from all of those. Uh, my listeners, I, I beg of you, if, if this is you, if you haven't uh, made Jesus King Supreme in your life, or, or you have, but then you've turned back to the world and to the lusts of the flesh and to the, and to the pleasures of this world, then I'm, please, I beg you today, Christ begs through me today to you, uh, turn to or back to Jesus Christ and make Him King Supreme and live for Him and not the world or the things of the world. And, and don't leave his side until you die or until you see him coming in the clouds if, you're, if you make it that far um, through, through the Antichrist reign uh, and through his persecution of you. Don't, don't leave his side until you see him coming in the clouds and, and he takes you up with him. Please turn to him today. Let's say you tell me today that you are surrendered to Jesus the Christ, the King Supreme, and that He is the one and everything to you above everything else. Then here's what I want you to do. You need to make sure that you're telling everyone you know that He is in your life by your actions, by your words, by your overall life. And here's what you need not to do and not to fall into the comforts of this world, not to compromise that message. Don't compromise your heart and offer a little pinch of this or that to any of the gods of this world, but be dedicated and solely cut out and solely surrendered to Jesus Christ, just as Paul and the early disciples and the apostles of Jesus Christ didn't do. They didn't compromise. They weren't willing to bend or yield to the things of this world as gods and so that they would serve them again. There is only one Jesus Christ that saves. And this is the Jesus of the Bible. And the main way that God has given that people know Him is through the lives and mouths of those whom He's redeemed already. Through His Word, through those He's redeemed already. So if Jesus is King Supreme to you, get busy. 
Get busy and tell other people. And if they arrest you for it, or if they bring you before a great big auditorium full of rich and powerful people, just like they did Paul, the Bible says, don't worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will give you that when you're there. And if they say, compromise or reject him or we'll kill you, well then say, I won't compromise and I won't reject him. Go, go ahead and kill me. And then just think, you'll be in his arms earlier than later. That's what you should desire anyway, to be with him forever. So just follow him and serve him with all your heart and all your mind and all your lives. And don't bend and don't compromise to the world. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord God, for this message. Lord, thank you so much for um, your word. Thank you so much, Lord God, for the actions, Lord God, of Paul. Thank you so much, Lord God, that you, for wisdom of your word, Lord God, to, to the why. why. Why wasn't... Paul deemed guilty by these four other entities when they were true to Rome, yet yet Caesar, who was already hostile toward Christians, yet he was already uh, that way. He already hated Christians and already was imprisoning Christians. So, and thank you, Lord, for that answer. And Lord, thank you uh, that you help us to know why. The, the why, Lord, that Jesus Christ being being King Supreme, being the Christ, being the only way to heaven, being the one in whom He wants to be worshipped and, and that we give our lives to and serve, Lord. Thank you that we know, Lord God, that that is a message that, that is toxic to the world, that's, that's hostile, that the world is hostile towards, Lord God. And I thank you, Lord God, that we can be carriers of that message, Lord, because that message is a message of hope that changes people's lives. The message of things or works or, or different doctrines, Lord, those things don't save people. Lord, Jesus Christ is King Supreme and how to turn to Him to be saved, Lord, that is what saves people. Lord, and I, and I just pray, Lord God, that for every Christian out there that they would be proclaimers of these truths and that they would not compromise and that they would be bold to do such things, Lord God in heaven. And I pray, Lord, for those listening today, who maybe Jesus Christ wasn't King Supreme or is not King Supreme in their lives right now, Lord, I, I pray that they would turn to you right now. Help them, Lord God. Help them to see your goodness. Help them to see your love. Help them to see your, your, just, your welcoming arms. And, and Lord, I pray you'd show them that even if they gain the whole world, but they lose their own soul, it's not going to be worth it. Because in the end, we're going to die someday and we're going to stand before the great judge of all the earth. And then you're going to judge us according to our works, not according to what we believed in our minds. So, Lord, we thank you for all these truths, and I pray you'd help those that are not surrendered to Jesus Christ today. I pray you'd help them to turn to Jesus, and, Lord, make him king supreme. In Jesus Christ's name we ask all these things. Amen.